Hey everyone, Jay here. Um, so I've been silent here for a while, but uh, I do want you to know that Dilemma is not dead and gone. Uh, I will be returning with episodes and conversations in the future. Dilemma is just me, and I've been devoted to a few other time-consuming projects recently. I wrote and produced a 10-part series called The Essential Sam Harris for the Making Sense podcast. Those are over on uh, the Making Sense feed, and I'm quite proud of them. Uh, and I'm currently working on another audio series, which is all about the mystery of the mind and questions of consciousness with Annika Harris. Uh, we don't have a release date yet, but for all the theory of mind nerds out there, that show is going to be something you're, you're really going to love. Um, it's called Lights On. Uh, but yes, Dilemma will have life again, so keep it on your liked or followed or subscribed or whatever it is, and uh, I really appreciate a lot of the kind words and inquiries about it that I've received. Uh, it means a lot to me that it's important to some people out there. Okay, but yes, this is not really an episode, but rather it's an essay which I just wrote and wanted to share. Uh, it's written in the midst of the ongoing Israeli-Palestinian situation, which, of course, is not new at all, but this flare-up in violence is pretty disturbing and dangerous. Uh, this has been a subject that has long frustrated me, and there's always a lot said about it, especially when the tensions are as high as they currently are. So I appreciate you listening and seeing if I have anything interesting to add. I think I do, and... I think I was able to point to a fairly large hole in our language of moral philosophy, which has left any kind of nuanced analysis on this topic so difficult to produce. There's such an enormous tendency to want to look at these things as if they are team sports with clear sides of good and evil or make rigged comparisons which seem to only serve to point to shielding one or another combatant from any forms of critique. Um, I hope to sidestep that tendency in myself and in the reader or listeners, though I'm sure I will be somewhat unsuccessful. Um, anyway, I also published this essay on my own site in uh, written form, so that can be found at whatjthinks.com. And here's the essay. I called it Israel and Palestine, malevolent machinery. There are a lot of terms used to frame the act of killing humans. These terms carry with them tacit arguments designed to cast the moral nature of the act in all kinds of ways. It's important to pay close attention to these words when attempting to think clearly and ethically about complex and emotionally charged situations. Here are a few of the words I'm thinking about. Terrorism, collateral damage, self-defense, sacrifice, martyrdom, retribution, liquidation, ethnic cleansing, extermination, murder, manslaughter, etc. Of course, I'm thinking about the latest round of killed humans in Israel and Palestine, and the whirlwind of media coverage and thinly veiled propaganda which always happens when political figureheads discuss human deaths. In this essay, I'm not going to write very much about the historical causes of this violence or recent political maneuvering. My main goal in this essay is to suggest a more nuanced moral conversation about a particular act of killing, which is very difficult to capture in any of the terms listed in the previous paragraph and hides in a little understood blind spot of moral philosophy.
If you do want a discussion of the political and historical knots which have led to the situation in Israel, I highly recommend two conversations which should be viewed in succession. They're both from a podcast called The Rest is Politics. The first one is with Hussam Zamlat, and the second is with Yuval Noah Harari. In this essay, I'd like to address the talking point being espoused across the media and political landscape which is used to shine light on the difference in the moral nature of the two sides caught up in this bloody exchange. The talking point explains how a moral equivalence between Israeli attacks and Hamas attacks cannot be made honestly. Even if you call one a provoked response and the other a brutal attack, it does not matter which is which. The argument is not very complex. In so many words, it's argued that one side is deliberately trying to target and maximize civilian deaths, while the other is trying to minimize or avoid them. Even if the final death count results in a mismatch of the intentions, this, we are told, does not reveal very much. The intention is what ultimately matters in the moral judgment. These arguments point to practices like the use of human shields and doing things like hiding behind schools or hospitals, which are things that one particular combatant does in this conflict, while the other shuns and abhors. We're told that this imbalance is perfectly revealing of their moral statuses. This argument has been repeatedly made by Benjamin Netanyahu, Joe Biden, countless media figures, and many prominent thinkers and authors. It's a fine point, and I don't disagree with it. Let me repeat that before I attempt to thread the needle and add what I think is a crucial nuance to a tired, shallow, and obfuscating piece of moral analysis. I agree that there is a real distinguishing moral difference to explain there. So I'll attempt to keep that in view as I continue on and try to explain how the point is far less interesting or morally exculpatory than it first appears. As is often my critique of shallow moral philosophizing like this, it ignores the strength of psychology and features of our minds which can convince us of the feasibility and genuineness of our intentions in order to couch certain deaths as tragically unfortunate collateral damage rather than something else much more tragic and sinister. Collateral damage or lives caught in the crossfire These are phrases which Israeli officials, Israeli allies, and sympathetic media members use to describe the images of dead and starving children, which often happen after their bombs drop and during their operations. What we don't see in those images, we are told, are the dead young men with green bandanas holding rocket launchers who were attempting to fire them over walls. And we don't see the images of green-clad, knife-wielding, masked men holding hostages and attempting to transport weapons through tunnels to abduct and kill more. If we saw those images alongside the dead children, perhaps we'd be able to understand the situation as a classic trolley problem. Heaps on top of this logic is the added information of extra measures taken which happened in the moments before the image of the dead child, which we're hoping to avoid it. These include knocking warnings, evacuation phone calls, evacuation orders, foreign aid, or other such alarm systems. We're reminded that these type of actions are designed to avoid the dead child, and they are not even attempted by the enemy. In fact, the dead child is oftentimes the precise goal of the enemy. All of this is meant to add up to a complete moral argument 
that the intention was never to kill the child, but regrettably, it happened in the service of a consequentialist calculation towards a greater moral aim, namely, eliminating Hamas and allowing Jews to live with security. In other words, the child was the collateral damage. The moral summary of actions of this kind at individual and or national scales is encapsulated in a simple four-word sentence, I had no choice. Now, I do think that there are circumstances in the world where one can utter that sentence and retain their moral integrity. For example, I like to think of myself as a good person. I also think a good person doesn't support nations which are engaged in a mechanically systemized genocide. No, I'm not talking about Israel there. I'm talking about China. China is engaged in a mechanical, systemized genocide against its Uyghur population. I purchase products which are made in China. In fact, I not only regularly purchase them, I'm likely ignorant of all the Chinese manufactured parts of the objects which are in my view at this very moment. And a large part of me doesn't even want to know that information and would be irritated to have the tally revealed to me. And even worse, it's nearly certain that I will be purchasing Chinese products many more times over the next month. So, am I a good person? The relevant question I wish to suggest goes like this. Can I, with my moral integrity intact, look around at these Chinese-made objects and utter the sentence, I had no choice? Yeah, I think I can. Of course, I could attempt to boycott all Chinese-made products, but it would take a rather gargantuan effort to do so in my current circumstance. I suppose it is technically possible, but at some point, which must be self-evaluated, one can keep their integrity and shake their head and decide that it's simply asking too much of them. This practice of examining one's moral integrity is something that I'm expounding in book form and I've been thinking about a lot lately. But to preview the Fuller argument, it's up to us to measure whether we are actually in a consequentialist trolley problem-like nightmare, or we are simply telling ourselves a justifying and rationalizing cover story for other less savory psychological motivations. In the case of the Chinese-made products, perhaps these would be convenience, laziness, selfishness, or even racism. But the important point is this. If one can legitimately understand themselves to be in such a consequentialist trap, I contend that what they have discovered is not some sort of clarifying moral prescription or moral permission to take the next action, which inevitably produces collateral damage, but rather they have discovered the existence of a political problem one which must be solved in order to free one from the consequentialist prison of having no choice. This is especially true when the non-choice involves generating loads of dead bodies or propping up genocidal systems. This type of moral analysis that I'm advocating results in a redefinition of political systems which approves of those which allow for individuals to exercise and explore their moral integrity and condemns those which wedge their citizens into trolley problems where the only way to keep their moral integrity intact is to actually conclude that they have no choice. I contend that this philosophical shift would help us break free 
from the democracy versus totalitarian conversation, which has dominated but failed to explain the last century. So can this framework help us understand the Israeli claims of collateral damage? We have to ask ourselves if the intention of eliminating Hamas is genuine. We have to ask ourselves if it is achievable. We have to ask if it is really believed. And if so, we have to ask if the actions which claim to be in service of that aim are almost certain to backfire and embolden Hamas. And more importantly, we have to ask if the executors of all these actions know all of this to be true and have examined their moral integrity fully before telling the world and themselves that they had no choice. This is where moral philosophy and trolley problem consequentialism has dominated the moral and political conversation since the Industrial Revolution, and it fails miserably to incorporate the weight of psychology. I have no doubt that Israel wishes to eliminate Hamas. I do, however, greatly doubt that they actually think it can be bombed out of existence. I also greatly doubt that they think a complete siege of the entire population and denial of basic survival materials will help eliminate Hamas. See the previous decades of experience for evidence of my claims. The 9-11 comparisons have been floating since Hamas's rampage on October 7th. And to further that comparison, just like in the US's situation in 2001, a deeply divided domestic populace led by a religious right-wing administration immediately garnered a unified supermajority of hurt, angry, and energized people, as well as a sympathetic global eye from economically and militarily powerful countries. But it's been rather depressing to see how little anyone has seemed to learn from the U.S.'s response to 9-11, which by any rational account was a civilizationally catastrophic disaster, which featured false justifications for wars, undefined and impossible aims which seemed incongruous with the military actions that were proposed to achieve them, and about 350,000 dead bodies in Iraq, Afghanistan, and the ranks of the U.S. military. The U.S. waged a war on terror where we tried to smoke them out of their holes and liberate Iraq and Afghanistan. Again, I have no doubt that the U.S. intended to do those noble things. And perhaps they even began to believe that they were achievable. But at some point in the next 20 years, especially in Afghanistan, it grew harder and harder to believe that each bomb that was dropped near children was still in service of an achievable goal. It's possible to lose faith in one's consequentialist justification somewhere in the middle of a conflict. This is often where the seeds of PTSD are sown. Producing collateral damage is haunting, ugly, and difficult to unsee, but engaging in murder is psychologically crippling when the shame can no longer be dampened by a consequentialist story of having no choice. Think of a soldier who has the image of a dead child in his mind, which was the result of an airstrike that he ordered. This soldier, I'm sure, thinks of himself as a good person. And he knows that good people don't usually kill children. So this terrible image can be soothed by a consequentialist argument, which couches it in the service of a greater noble goal, which could be achieved. Because good people don't murder children, but good people do sometimes find themselves in trolley problems where they have no choice but to take an action which will kill a child. 
especially when one signs up for combat. Years later, it must be devastating to witness the Taliban sitting comfortably in charge of that dead child's village. The only thing which saves this soldier from the moral abyss is to cling to the notion that he really believed that goal was possible at the time, or that he trusted his leadership and fully suppressed his personal doubts and opinions in an act of submission to the wisdom and belief of presidents and generals. But if the soldier is honest with himself and knows that he didn't really believe the goal was possible, the awful truth is exposed. Or even worse, the soldier begins to understand that he was brainwashed into a mental state where questions of moral integrity were strictly forbidden in order to follow orders without hesitation or question. The moral and practical mathematics had already been worked out by higher ups, he was told, until it was revealed that they had no plan or had lost faith in it themselves long ago. Yes, intentions matter deeply in moral and psychological analysis, and the act of deciphering intentions is no easy task. But let's try in this difficult situation. The moral philosophers attempting to evaluate the Israel and Hamas conflict take the stated intentions of both as genuine. Hamas, on one hand, is explicit in its stated intention and actions. It wishes to kill Israelis and achieve an end state where Jews are eliminated and expelled from historic Palestine. They say so plainly, and they're quite consistent with that goal. There isn't much mystery or psychological analysis needed there. They likely believe that goal deeply and couch every act of rape, torture, and murder within it to retain their status of being a good person, or at least a noble divine warrior. And yes, ideology and religion play an important role to forge or encourage the actions by which they hope to achieve their aims and retain their inner divine status. This religious role crucially includes a post-death vision of martyrdom and heaven for certain dead bodies and a dehumanized, ungodly, infidel vision for the others. This ideological aspect, as many of us have long understood, is the fatal blind spot of many liberal Westerners, and it must be considered in the final analysis. Though, it is far from the only story, nor is it the only morally deterministic factor which ought to drive military and political policy, or allow its enemies to escape honest moral evaluation themselves. The current Israeli explicit stated intention is to eliminate Hamas and figure out a way to live in relative security in the region. Note that I'm attempting to be really careful with those aspects of the Israeli intention because Israel's political and military regime is currently loaded with people who are rather open about their stated methods of how to achieve the security part, which include extermination of Palestinians or complete Arab expulsion from the West Bank, and previous Israeli administrations were short-sighted in their encouragement of Hamas as well, another obvious forgotten lesson of the U.S.'s relationship with the bin Ladens during the Cold War. This is one of the complications of morally evaluating the intentions and actions of democracies. They tend to be messy and multi-voiced, but this point about the makeup of Israeli leadership in the year 2023 cannot be forgotten or missed. It appears that some people 
are evaluating the intentions of Israel with a very outdated moral map, which fails to account for the march towards aggressive religiously fueled extremism, which has been underway over the last decade. The philosopher Slava Zizek emphasized this point well in a recent talk in which he outlines the prohibition against analysis, which serves to shield Israel from critique. This talk also featured a very telling heckler who charged Zizek with relativism and interrupted him. Apparently Zizek opening with the line, I unconditionally condemn the attack on Israelis close to the Gaza border without any ifs and buts, and I give Israel the right to defend itself and to destroy the threat was not enough. It seems that no matter how many times we attempt to be nuanced while shouting that Hamas is a brutal terrorist group whose tactics could never be justified, it's never enough for some people if we dare to offer any context or critique of Israel. It's actually becoming difficult to imagine any scale or scope of military or political response by Israel, which when critiqued or analyzed, as Zizek was suggesting, would not be met with jeers and cries of relativism or justification of terrorism, or even worse, anti-Semitism, or in my case, self-hating Jewism. If Israel flattened all of Gaza with a nuclear weapon, if they expelled every Arab from the West Bank, couldn't Israel do no wrong in the face of its history and its neighborhood? This point really must be stressed because there's an oft-used applause line, and it goes like this. The truth is that if Palestinians put down their weapons, there would be peace. And if Israel put down their weapons, there would be no Israel. Could there be any more eloquent way to say the words, Israel has no choice than that? The problem with the expression is the word peace. If what one means by peace is the absence of any bullets flying, then yes, this expression is basically true. Again, I don't wish to forget the murderous actions and intentions of an increasingly worrisome number of West Bank Israeli settlers who would absolutely still be sending bullets flying at a disarmed Palestinian. But if you change the word peace in the original expression to justice, you'll hear the problem. If Palestinians put down their weapons, there would be justice. I could stop the quote there because I think anyone who has even the faintest knowledge of the situation since 1917 onward would be hard-pressed to accept that line. And at that point, the no justice, no peace chants start and the violence cycle reboots itself with the same linguistic imbalance where one participant would be thrilled to achieve a full disarmament and continue the status quo while the other grows more and more frustrated, angry, and desperate. You can easily guess which side is which. So back to the bombs. We will continue to be told that the civilian deaths caused by Israeli strikes and sieges fall into one of three categories. Either they will be one, collateral damage, two, unfortunate mistakes, or three, some small number of bad actors who intentionally commit atrocities and they will be prosecuted. What is protected in those categorizations is Israel's moral character, Every civilian death is an unfortunate accident or an unavoidable, I had no choice result. What I'm suggesting in this essay is that there is a term which should be introduced, which describes an act of killing, which has these types of characteristics. One, one is about to drop a bomb and it's a near certainty that children will die. Two, it's also a near certainty that the target of the stated intention will die. Three, 
It's also a near certainty that the ultimate desired end state will not be achieved or advanced by this bomb. 4. It's also a near certainty that the action will result in even more targets being created which will manifest in the following years. And 5. It's also a near certainty that a deep, honest evaluation of one's moral integrity would reveal that all of this information is known. I am suggesting that the name of this action is the malevolent machinery of futile inevitability. I think it's a tremendously common phenomenon. If you're convinced at all by it, or even a bit challenged by it as a concept, I would bet that what you're feeling is some kind of objection that Israel had to do something. Even if you aren't sure that a complete blockade the cutting off of electricity, food, and water to the entire population, an impossibly short timeline for an evacuation order, and continued bombing, all while seemingly not rushing with ground troops to attempt to rescue hostages, weren't exactly the right things to do, which would have matched the stated intentions of eliminating Hamas, you still might be insisting that they had no choice but to do something. I don't disagree. I am also not a military strategist. And there is usually some moral slack given in these situations to allow for a period of sloppy and haphazard response. What we don't want to happen is for momentum to build during that emotional panic which sets events in action which cannot be later reconsidered. I'm not sure that we're avoiding that fate. One thing that I didn't mention in this essay was the impossibility of doing nothing. Because people need revenge, vengeance, retribution, or a sense of justice. I don't wish to tackle those issues in this essay. I will attempt to do so in my longer form book. But I'd like to suggest that those impulses are also likely futile. And of course, they're widely understood to be much less noble or moral aims than combating terrorism or self-defense. It's highly unusual for anyone to admit to these things as being their true motivation and intention, though, of course, it's often the best and most honest explanation. But to recall the lessons of 9-11 is to recall the deep pain, anger, and humiliation which morphed quickly into calls for revenge and justice, and soon a horribly misguided and disastrous international action. The machinery of the must-do-something feeling was already in place, and before we knew it, we had convinced ourselves that the bombs were noble. We aren't just lashing out. We aren't just seeking revenge. We are trying to liberate and save. We're being precise and going after criminals who perpetrated murder, and we aren't the same as our enemies. And we weren't. Our intentions were not to kill and maim children. That does matter for something. But we were susceptible to all the trappings of psychological pain which desperately seek the comforting consequentialist expression, I have no choice, which morally permits us to kill. Israel, given its history and existential anxieties, is especially vulnerable to this dark phenomenon. They are human after all, like all of us. All of us.